0: Well, after a considerable break, we come back tonight to the Book of Jeremiah, and we come back to the fourth chapter of Jeremiah. And just to basically help us get our bearings, uh, both with regard to where we've been, where where we are now, perhaps a little bit of where we're going, um, just remind you of a couple of things and uh, state a couple of things. Um, and the first is this: the Jeremiah had a lengthy ministry; it was some forty years uh, from the time of King Josiah. Uh, during the time of the discovery of the book of the law, the reforms that were made in the nation, uh, those were some probably good times, although Jeremiah has some measure of reflection upon that, that though the external changes were made, maybe it wasn't a change of heart. Maybe there was external reform. Sometimes the Josiah reforms were made to be the model of what reforming the church should be. But uh, again, it wasn't long before or after those reforms were made that uh, the one that led in those reforms, King Josiah himself, very foolishly goes into battle against the Egyptians and loses his life. And then his children take over and they're just not worthy kings at all. These are the final kings that just preside in the downfall of the kingdom of Judah with the with uh, uh, Zechariah, I'm sorry, Zedekiah, there's the final king that uh, uh, brings down the Davidic throne until the next great king comes in the person of the Lord Jesus himself. But um, we don't exactly know in every part of this uh, uh, book where the historical background is. You've got to kind of guess at it because Jeremiah does not give you historical markers he didn't say in the, you know, the fifth year of this king, as often Ezekiel did, or in, in this point in the captivity Ezekiel did, and in other places and other um, prophecies that so were told. This happened in the year the king Uzziah died. We're uh, not told. When God has come to Jeremiah with the message, how far along it is in terms of the apostasy of the nation, how how, how near the end is when the Babylonian captivity will come, and it's interesting that the way in which these uh, prophecies are given is that there's as you move along increasing understanding of the things that will occur, because at first you're not even told it's the Babylonians that are the nation to be feared. Uh, probably, it's obvious, probably to the average person, that would have been the next great empire that, could, that would come along, that defeated the Assyrians, defeated Pharaoh. Then the Egyptians probably were just, uh, uh, just waiting for them to come and scoop us up as well. Um, but we're not told exactly who it is. We're just told... armies from the north are coming to blow the trumpet, declare in Judah, proclaim in Jerusalem um, uh, assemble let us go into the fortified cities, raise a standard, Troubles afoot, don't stand still, let's get moving, let's get to a place of safety because horrible things are about to occur. Um, But we're not told exactly how long it is before that eventual event occurs. So it's a little bit hard to understand. Also, it's hard to understand Jeremiah's responses at all points. Because in this passage we read, and we're looking at this evening, Jeremiah utters something he does again in chapter 20. He says in response to God's word about the judgment that will come, that in some way, Lord, you've deceived us. You kind of set us up. We're expecting better things, and you're actually telling us it's not what was expected. Well, exactly why does Jeremiah feel that way? What is he responding to? Or uh, what does he know? And it seems to me that though you have clear indications right, right away in chapter 1 that this power from the north is going to come and destruction is going to come, nations are going to be at the uh, gates of Jerusalem, it's like God told him from the beginning. Your ministry is to pluck up and tear down and destroy and dismantle then to build and plant. Building and planting is there, but it's largely a ministry of tearing things down, of destroying things. Uh, And yet... uh uh, Jeremiah's understanding of these things seems it also just to be in, sort of moving along and evolving. Uh, maybe he doesn't have full comprehension of everything that God has said, and it leads him to think that maybe he himself has been deceived. There's no other answers to that problem. But I want you to get the understanding that though Jeremiah is the agent of God's word to his people, it doesn't mean Jeremiah understands all that that word of God is going to be, or that he's able to plug it all in. He's not an omniscient prophet. He doesn't know the full ways of the Lord with his people. It's enough for him to just be faithful in bringing the message God has given him. But he struggles with the message. He doesn't. He's not able to plug it in to his own conceptions of what God's going to do, and he feels, in many ways, troubled, disheartened, uh, maybe betrayed by by the Lord Himself. But ultimately, he sees this is still God's word. Ultimately, he sees this is still God is God's doing. That whatever the means that uh, are being used, God is bringing judgment upon a nation that He will acknowledge through this word. Deserves the judgment that is being brought. Here's a people who are wise in only one thing. They're wise in doing evil. They don't know how to do good. And all of his efforts to call them back, to call them to repentance, has seemed to be unavailing. And so when you come into chapter 4 and verse 5, a very dark picture ensues. The picture is the picture of the coming invasion. The coming armies that will come from the north But he calls in verse um, 7 a lion from the north. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He's gone out from his place and he's coming. He's coming. Usually the picture of a lion is the picture of uh, a king. A picture of an empire. Uh, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that depicts him in terms of his kingly rule, his kingly authority. So the nations have their kings who operate with not loving rule, but bestial rule, like a lion that will rend and tear and ruin and destroy. The king of the beasts will come and bring total destruction unto the nation. And so this is what's being described. And it's described in in in. in uh, graphic ways, in, uh, in uh, very imaginative ways, uh, there's the picture um, that is given both in poetry and in prose. And one of the things you see in Jeremiah, an alternation between poetry and prose, a poetic part and then a prose part. And oftentimes the poetic part, because it brings in a lot of imagery, um, is, is confusing. But uh, is striking. It's uh, something that powerfully presents aspects of uh, God's word to His people. That is, because it's in poetry, very, very moving and powerful. But then often uh, the pro- the prose parts are explanatory, uh, help us to really gain perspective on what the poetry is saying. This imaginative, powerful poetry that. Uh, Jeremiah employs, but uh, as we look at it, um, there's a section that seems to picture the attack that's coming in terms of its urgency. There's stuff that we got to do now. We cannot delay. We cannot stand still. The nation has to act. Trouble is coming. And then it moves from the aspect of the urgency of the matter to the intensity of the judgment that will come. And it moves from urgency and intensity to the seeing of the totality of the judgment that the invasion will bring. And that's basically the division we're going to look at. Though There's a couple of other things. There's a couple of ways in which it's also pictured. Uh, this urgent, intense, and total destruction in terms of a decreation. And we're going to look at that in... Uh, Oh, there really comes in towards the end in verse uh, 28 and following or 27 and following uh, this whole land uh, desolation uh, being um, um, I'm looking at the language and I'm not finding it uh, what I'm looking at that it uh, is a picture of the uh, Oh, I'm sorry. It's actually earlier in verse 23. Looked on the earth and behold it was without form and void. All those, I, I looked, I looked, I looked, I looked. And here's what I saw. And there's this picture of seeing things just dismantled. Everything taken apart. Everything that was the picture of a, of a glorious, habitable land that flowed with milk and honey. It turns to the darkness and the voidness of the pre-creation a picture of Genesis chapter 1 when the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Before God said, let there be light. Before God made a habitable world for man his image. um, That's what sin brings. Sin brings dismantling of our humanity. The dismantling of creation itself. Of a return to the darkness of the pre-creation picture where God makes a habitable world for his image bearers. So uh, it's a, it's an amazing picture that is presented. And that's what we're going to look at, God willing, uh, this evening. I want to begin with the picture that's given, first of all, at the outset, of this urgency, this picture of urgency. Let's look at it in verse chapter 4 and verse 5. Uh, the prophet's told to declare in judah and to proclaim in jerusalem and say and um, there's seven imperatives that are given i'm sorry is there seven or five i forget blow the trumpet through the land cry aloud assemble and let us go raise a standard flee for safety I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. Or the, or the the stay not. I think there's seven of them all told. They're all in imperatives. They're all in commands. Do this and do it now. Don't delay. Don't dilly-dally. There's no time to just stand still and do nothing. An urgent condition is coming upon the land. The blowing of the trumpet is for the sounding of the battle. Um, you remember the blowing of the trumpets when uh, Israel entered in the land and surrounded Jer- uh, the city of Jericho and uh, the trumpets were blown for seven days and then seven trumpet blows and the walls fell down uh, God's uh, marshalling the forces uh, that will come against his people and uh, you have a similar call for the blowing of the trumpet in chapter 6 you see it there as well uh, flee for safety, O oh, people of Benjamin. Again, the call of urgent action. There needs to be action taken. Flee for safety in the midst from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet into Koa. Raise a signal on Beth Hakaram, for disaster looms out of the north and great destruction. There's no time to be to waste. So we have to take action, and we have to take it now. So blow the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, the people need to assemble. The need, people need to take action. The people cannot remain in the unfortified cities. Assemble, let us go into the fortified cities probably a call to go into Zion raise a standard towards Zion again Zion was the mountain upon which the temple stood and Zion came to stand uh, for the temple mount <coughs> excuse me sometimes the temple itself sometimes the whole city the city was the city of God God's presence was in the city again Ezekiel's picture of the new city the eschatological city is that it has a new name the Lord is there and God was there in Jerusalem. It was the city of God, beautiful for elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, the site of the north, the city of the great king. And sometimes Zion was the, was, the, was the mountain, sometimes it was the temple, sometimes it stood for the city itself. And so the raising of the standard towards Zion is to bring the march of the peoples away from the unfortified places towards the, the city of Zion itself. And the reason for this action that needs to take place needs to happen now. You can't just stand still and do nothing. Stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. The empire that will come as a great power from the north, a lion, the destroyer of nations. They're on the move. They've set out. They're coming. They're coming quickly. and urgent action must be taken quickly in the light of their advance. Their concern is to make your land a waste, to be cities that will be ruins without inhabitant. And in the light of this morn, put on sackcloth, lament and wail. Not just because Babylon's coming, but Babylon is an expression of the fierce anger of Yahweh that has not turned back from us. God has said, Turn back to me. Turn back away from your sins, away from death, away from judgment, turn back to me. The people refuse to turn back to him. So God says, I've not I will not turn back my wrath. My hand is stretched out, and no one will pull it back. And that's the poem we find in verse 5 to 8. And that's followed by this prose section, which in the prose section we're told that in that day, declares Yahweh, courage shall fail both king and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. All the people that should have been leaders in the way of righteousness. Leading the people in the way of repentance. Josiah's sons should have been like Josiah. Heeding and hearing the word of God that was found in in the temple. And he quaked in the light of the judgments God said he would bring for disobedience. He called the people back to obedience. Resumed the proper worship of God took down the high places sought to bring reforms and yet his sons did not walk in his ways and so courage shall fail both king and officials one thing you just have to say about a man like Josiah whether he made the right decisions or the wrong decisions he was a man of courage and a man of action it was foolhardy for him to go to war against the Egyptians, but yet he went to war against the Egyptians. But these are leaders that will not suffice, that will not be able leaders to lead the people in this hour of trial. Courage shall fail, both king and officials. The priests won't be of any help, dear. They'll just be appalled at the things that are happened, and the prophets will be astounded, because everything they prophesied will come didn't come. They said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They said, everything is going to be safety. Safety will come. Everything will be good. And destruction comes. And Jeremiah's response in the face of all of this is a troubled response. It's troubling to really understand what Jeremiah is thinking here when he says, Ah, Lord God, surely you have deceived this people. You've deceived Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. Now, it's hard to know what exactly Jeremiah is thinking at this point. Is he thinking that the words of the prophets of Jehovah, of Yahweh, that went around saying, We're the prophets of Yahweh. We're the prophets of of the Lord. And we're we're telling you the truth. And we're telling you a message of peace. Was Jeremiah at this point believing it? Was he saying, Lord, you deceived us because because there was a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets? Remember back in 1 Kings chapter 22 with uh, Ahab looking to go up to war against the Syrians and alliance with Jehoshaphat, and they wanted to get a prophet of Yahweh? Ha ha ha. He really didn't want to get a prophet of Yahweh at all. He wanted his own prophets to tell him what to do, to tell him the thing he wanted to hear. And uh, you had Micaiah come along and say that, uh, you know, God put a lying spirit into the mouth of these prophets. people want to be deceived and they are deceived but Jeremiah is a priest he's not just a prophet and I think that's something of an explanation of his reaction it's not just that he comes as the bringing of God's words with clarity to the people he's a priest who has a heart for this people again priest is one who comes from among men to serve in behalf of men his heart is with them remember the priests when he did his officiating for the people it was the names of the tribes that were upon his shoulders and the ephod and the stones that were upon his shoulders and upon the breastplate the precious stones that had the names of the tribes so that as he officiated he would do it not just with the names of the tribes on his shoulders and and breastplate but upon his heart he was to Pray for the people. Intercede for the people. Do sacrifice on behalf of the people. And he had to do it with sympathy for the people. Jeremiah was a priest. And his heart is with this people. That's his greatest problem. is He can't divorce himself from this people. He cannot divorce himself and say, Oh, well, it's good. They, they deserve it. Their sins brought it on them. He's going to say it. He's going to say it as a faithful prophet of God. But yet his heart is still with the people. And we should never get past that priestly representation of people when we pray for them, to bring them into our hearts. Yeah, we know their sins deserve judgment. They're getting what they deserve. Yeah, we know all that. But our hearts should be saying it with weeping. We should be lamenting for them, even if they can't cry for themselves. Tears of water should run down our eyes, for they keep not God's commandments. That's a priestly heart. To pray for people who can't pray for themselves or won't pray for themselves. To intercede on their behalf. And to recognize that they're in deception. They're willingly in deception. God's really not to blame for it. But Lord... Have you allowed these false prophets to go around saying the things that they're saying? Look at this people, they're completely unprepared for the things that are coming. Jeremiah has a heart for the people that I think is what's behind something of the way that he reacts to God in the midst of it. So there's the invasion coming and the reaction should be an urgent one. An urgent one to not stand still and do nothing, but to do something for the people who was to flee. For Jeremiah it was to intercede, to pray for them, to feel for them, to have compassion for them, to be appalled in the light of the things that were coming, to put on sackcloth, to lament and wail. For the fierce anger of Yahweh is upon the people. That's a heartbreaking thing. That's a thing that should crush us in, in, before the Lord in our prayers for them, that God's wrath is justly upon them and that God would turn to them in mercy. But then along with the urgency, there is the expression of the intensity of this judgment that's going to come. An invasion's coming, And folks, it's not going to be pretty. There's going to be an intensity of destruction that will be coming. At this time it will be said to the people in verse 11, A hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people. Now the hot wind from the desert uh, is not expressing the direction from which they're coming. That hot wind would be the wind that would come from the east. But it's not from the east that they're going to come. It's from the north that they're going to come. But it's like a hot wind that's just going to bring... not cleansing, not winnowing. A wind that's too full for this comes from me. It's a wind that will bring total destruction. It's a wind that will be like the coming up of clouds in the poetic part that follows in verse 13... With chariots like whirlwind, horses swifter than eagles. And the response is, Woe to us, for we are ruined. It's a hopeless situation. It's a hopeless condition. This is not, nothing that's going to come that in and of itself is going to benefit this people in the least. It's not going to be for cleansing. It's not going to be for winnowing. It's going to be for judgment. It's going to be for complete and total destruction. But even in the face of that, The call goes out to the city of Jerusalem to wash your heart from evil. Now, they're not going to wash the land from the destruction that's coming. There's a sense in which evil, the same word for evil, is used for both moral failures and defects and deficiencies, and also for evil that comes upon a nation in the way of calamity and war. Evil can be calamitous conditions that come as divine judgment and chastisement upon the people. The same words used for the evil of the human heart in which moral deficiency and defect and apostasy and idolatry and rebellion and oppression and and, uh, adulterous thoughts and uh, uh, self-interest and all the total catalog of human sin come into play. And God says, as you see the troubles around you, you see the judgments upon the nation, you see the evil coming in from the armies that will seize the nation, and as you've gathered for safety in Jerusalem, utilize the time you have there to wash your heart from evil. Let the external judgments that come upon a nation not become a reason to say "Well, let's get all political about how we can save ourselves let's, uh, let's see what we can do to raise up an army that will counter the army that's coming against us, maybe we should get into an alliance again with the Egyptians and maybe look to some other place for help, all those ideas that seem to be so prevalent in the hearts of kings and leaders God says to Jerusalem use this as a time to cleanse your heart from evil from the moral gunk and garbage that fills your heart and again turn back to me that you may be saved how long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you again these are the things that are the reason for the calamity that comes from without use the calamity that comes from without as an opportunity to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that your heart would be cleansed from all evil and wicked thoughts would no longer lodge within you. Still a call to repentance, even in the midst of the certainty of the judgment that will come, even in the midst of this devastating situation in which intensity becomes the increasing order of the judgment that will fall. A voice declares from Dan in verse 15, the northernmost part of the northern kingdom. Remember the proverbial expression, from Dan to Beersheba, the northernmost part to the southernmost part, the totality of the land, everything in between. But now from the north, Dan, you hear a voice that declares the judgment that will come. And it proclaims trouble From Mount Ephraim. That's just a bit to the north of Jerusalem. So from the northernmost part down to the part just north of Jerusalem the armies will descend. Take up everything in between. Warn the nations that he is coming. Now could be be the he that's coming is the coming of the king of Babylon. Could be Yahweh coming in judgment through the means of the king of Babylon. But the point is this destruction is coming and it's going to take everything. Everything. From the far northern regions of of, of Dan. The boundaries of the inheritance that was given to Israel in the days of Joshua. All the way down to just north of the northern part of Judah. Everything in the middle is going to be taken up in the the, the, um, onslaught of the king of Babylon bringing the judgment of God upon the nations. Warn the nations. He's coming. announced to Jerusalem. Besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah like keepers of a field. They're against her all around. There's no escaping this. This is intense, total judgment. Because she's rebelled against me. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it's bitter. The tragic thing about this judgment that comes upon the southern kingdom and the judgment that came from the Assyrians upon the northern kingdom is that it was totally preventable if the people would have heeded God's word. It was their rebellion. It was their sin. It was that their ways, their deeds have brought this upon you. So bitter doom that you will experience. has reached your very heart. In the reaction on the part of the prophet is one of lament, lament. We're going to see there's some seven different whole sections of lament that's in the book of Jeremiah. This is not usually counted as one of them. I think it starts in chapter 11, the lament sections. From chapter 11, I think, to chapter 19, there's lament after lament after lament after lament. Jeremiah lays down his complaint before the Lord. But here we have an anticipation of the laments of the book. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain all the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Now as we get to some of the lament portions, it's an interesting thing. That a lot of those laments are clearly in the voice of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is speaking of his own anguish, of his own pain. But there's also some indications in some of those laments that it may well be that God shares that lament. God shares something of the pain. God shares something of the anguish of what he himself brings upon the nation. It's kind of the love pictures that you have in the book of Hosea where God, so much in love with this people, so much desirous of her restoration, Yet speaks of the anguish of his heart. How shall I give you up? How shall I allow you to be given over to this judgment that will come? It's necessary. It's something God, to be God, must bring. And yet, how shall he give her up? This is his wife. This is his people. This is the love of the espousals that he speaks about in chapter 2 Israel, holiness to the Lord, the form of delights he had in this nation. And God feels the anguish as well as the prophet feels the anguish. Again, not to say that God, is, that God is a God who is other than wholly blessed in himself. And in one sense impervious to the human condition. Yet in another sense he's not. In another sense his heart yearns over his people. And that's the picture he gives of himself. He's moved in the reality of the pain that this people will endure. In their affliction, he's afflicted. In their trouble, he's troubled. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? How long must I see the triumph of the adversary coming against the people of the living God? Then he turns again to the cause in verse 22 For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They're wise in doing evil. Again, that's their attitude, that's their skill, that's what they're good at. They're good at doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. Again, what a pitiful picture. And yet, it's a true picture. And it's a picture of the folly of the people. For which God again and the prophet again just simply is reduced to tears, laments over their wicked choices, their stubborn rebellion, their foolish lives that they've lived before God, when they had the word of God that ought to have instructed them in doing good, and yet they had not any capacity to receive that instruction. And as the result of it, judgment comes and judgment falls. And you know, when God brings judgment upon a people, it's almost as if everything that he has created on this earth for man's good and man's benefit becomes reduced to rubble. Becomes reduced to rubble. It becomes reduced to the sort of rubble that is really the picture of the initial creation account when it says in Genesis 1... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that original condition when creation began was all things were waste and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. He uses language that in the Hebrew is very uh, lyrical. The actual Hebrew is Tohu Vibohu. Tohu Vibohu. Kind of very lyrical. It rhymes Tohu Vibohu. Waste and void. It's the exact language used here. In Jeremiah 4 and verse 23, there's a series of mentions of the looking. I looked on the earth, verse 23. I looked on the mountains, verse 24. I looked and behold there was no man, verse 25. I looked and behold the fruitful land was a desert. And the first picture of his looking and seeing was again creation reduced to rubble. Almost like a decreation. almost like the picture you get in the fall. I'm sorry, in the flood, the flood narrative it goes back from the creatures that God made, beginning with the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and man made in his image, and then it goes in reverse order to the way things got created to the way things get destroyed. It's almost as if God's decreated everything, brought it back to waste and void and again the six days of creation were days in which God brought about conditions that were made for man to inhabit his world to where a garden was made and a garden of delight was established and to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, could be commanded man, made in God's image. Because God has made a glorious world for him to inhabit. and Yet sin reduces the world to rubble. Cursed is the ground for man's sake. It almost seems as if the moral picture of mankind that inhabits God's world is made to reflect... Externally, in the world itself, the human condition. So, God says, I'm going to bring the external judgment of evil of calamity to reflect the evil of your hearts, the evil of your thoughts. That the environment around that surrounds you is going to correspond to the wickedness and the evil of your heart. That evil is going to be around you, press in upon you. The evil of an evil nation that's looking to reduce you to nothing, looking to oppress you, looking to take you into captivity, looking to make the land that God blessed you with to be uninhabited. Because that's what it's going to be. It's not going to be fit for the inhabitation of anything but jackals and hyenas. And, you know, that's the picture again, you see it often in the book of Isaiah. That's what it's going to be reduced to. No man inhabiting the land. That was to be the land that Israel inhabited and was blessed in, the land that flowed with milk and honey. I looked on the earth, Tohuva Bohu, to the heavens, no light. I looked on the mountains, sought to be the picture of stability. They were quaking. The hills moved to and fro. Everything's unstable. The whole world's unsteady. The external world, because of human sin, comes to a place of utter chaos. I looked and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. So it sort of moved from urgency to intensity to totality. Total destruction. I know there were people still that remained in the land. They did make it through the Babylonian captivity. But again, the future was always with the exiles. The future was always with the people that would be brought back. But yet, it was not what at all God designed that land to be. It was not at all what they were redeemed from Egyptian bondage to know and enjoy. Their sins had simply brought evil upon them because of the evil of their hearts was reflected in the whole environment in which they lived. God brought a destruction that was total. Verse 27 For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation yet I will not make a full end. Again there was different Periods of Babylonian invasion. And a couple, at least two, perhaps three, periods of exiles that were brought out from the land. Some think there was just two in the time of Ezekiel and then the ultimate destruction of the city. But some think that there was also the Daniel exile, they separate that from the Ezekiel exile. I'm not sure what the exact truth is on the subject, but uh, there were these periods where they invaded, they brought people out from the land, they used the talented and the gifted and the leaders of the land for their own purposes. And the ultimate destruction, of course, came in 586 BC when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed. And the hope of the exiles of, of a soon return came to uh, came also to to an end a full end of destruction god would make and even that i'm sorry uh, the whole land should be desolation yet not a full end not a full destruction further things will come and even the destruction of the city of, of babylon that's often made to be a prelude to the final judgment it's often made in in pictures like that you know the picture of the flood the picture of the exile the picture of the destruction of Jerusalem is a picture of a final judgment that is still to come when all will be brought to account before God in the judgment of the last day that I think is ultimately the full end of judgment that God brings in the day day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God Verse 28 tells us, uh, For this the earth shall mourn, the heavens above be dark, for I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. Again, that language of turning back is the same word that's used to repent. Turn back, turn back. Why will you die? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn, return. Turn back, turn back. Israel did not turn back. And so God says, my wrath will not turn back. There's one final note that meets us at the end of this chapter. And that's the picture of the city in its destruction, forsaken, no man dwells in them. And yet in Jerusalem there seems to be a silly woman. A silly woman. Now, again, I don't think that the prophets are just being anti women, but this is a silly woman. You've got to confess this. And I think the silly woman is made to depict the silly nation, the silly character of the people. But in the midst of this judgment that God Himself has pronounced and which the prophet has taken pains to describe, you have this woman addressed in verse 30. What do you mean? That you dress in scarlet. You've gotten out to your best finery, your best dress, as if you're going to a ball, as if you're going to a wedding, you're going to a great banquet, you're going to a great party, or perhaps you're going out to seduce a lover, perhaps. You get in your best finery, into your best dress, you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold. You enlarge your eyes with paint. You put on the makeup. You dress to kill. God says in vain you beautify yourself. Now it could be the picture that the nation is poised to maybe attract some other lover. Maybe some other nation. Maybe some other ally. Maybe thinking they'll gain rescue from some other source. Some other place. Any place. Anywhere. But to turn back to God. They're going to be unfaithful to their husband to the last. Their true and rightful husband, the living and true God. They're just He's not the option for them. They're, they're so vain, they're so silly, they're so blinded, they're so deceived. They're so reprehensibly rebellious that they're going to last to the end with some vain hope that deliverance is going to come from some other place. But God says all of your pretended lovers, all the alliances you'll make with other peoples and other nations, you know what the truth is about them? They despise you. They don't love you. They don't have your interest at in heart. You think the the woman you're sleeping with or the man that you're sleeping with or the dalliances the, the that you're seeking is with people that really want Your best interests at heart—they'll stab you in the back in a moment. They'll they'll desert you in a second, as soon as you displease them. They're out for themselves. These, These alliances you've made with wickedness and evil is in vain. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life, if not to kill you, to bleed you for all they can get, everything they can take you for. But a vain thing to seek the things of this world, the relationships of this world, the alliances of this world, the people of this world to be our confidence, our hope, our joy, some some messianic figure that's going to bring us out of the doldrums of the ordinary into something extraordinary. It's just simply ridiculous. It's folly to be dressing yourself up and to putting on the gold and dressing to to the kill in order to attract some man or woman or person or who doesn't care about you and certainly does not care about you like the living God cares about you doesn't love you like the living God loves you what a folly it is to seek other unions and other relationships when the God of heaven and earth stands before you in his word and says I love you and I've demonstrated my love and that I've sent my son to die for your sins where are you going to find greater love than that Where are you going to find a greater lover than the living God? So God addresses this vain, silly woman, this vain, silly nation. He says, the truth of the matter is, your lovers don't care for you, and to persist in this way of rebellion against me is going to be your death knell. It's going to be giving birth to death giving birth to death. I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguishes of one giving birth to her first child. The cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands. Woe is me. I am fainting before murders. Again, it's just the graphic picture of you killing yourself. You're killing yourself. You think life is to be found in w- wickedness and in evil? You're just securing your own destruction. You're securing your own death. You're giving birth, not to something that will live. You're giving birth to only that which will die. Fainting before murderers. Sin is the great killer. The great murderer. Your, your father, the devil. The desires of your father, it's your will to do. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he was a murderer from the beginning. He did not stand in the truth. The truth is not in him. Your good is not in him. He does not desire to do anything but to kill, murder, and destroy. Sin is the great destroyer. We wake up to that, for the study of the book of Jeremiah, it will have done us great good. The book of Jeremiah will will have done us great good to realize there's a bitterness in being under divine anger. There's, there's, There's death and destruction and things which will never be in anyone's best interest. To pursue a path that puts us at odds with the God of heaven and earth. to be standing under his frown and not under his smile. And it's so unnecessary. Because he stands before us in the gospel. And offers us himself. And offers us his love. Why cling to our idols? Why cling to the ways that lead to destruction? When God again puts the path of life before you. I put before you life and death. Choose life, Moses says. Jesus stands before us in the gospel and says, I offer you life, the waters of life freely. Come, take, drink, enjoy. Know the blessings. Know the path of life rather than the pathway of death. May God help us to choose wisely to make the right choice, the choice that is in our best interest and in the interests of his honor and of his glory. What a wonderfully graphic way Jeremiah sets it out to us. May we hear God's word and may we be motivated into deeper measures of appreciation of the offer of life and the offer of love that stands before us in the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time in this book that sets out so markedly and graphically the way of life and the way of death. You see, Israel chose in folly the way that led to its own destruction. We pray that we would not be doing anything near to what they did, that our hearts would not be hardened. We would not be indifferent to your voice. We would not be going after false lovers. We would not be looking for the words of false prophets. We would not trust in institutions to save us when we have a living God who comes and seeks us that we would know you and we would turn to you that Lord your wrath would never turn against us we would you would turn towards us with your with the embrace of love and with the embrace of your grace and your provisions and we would know the beauty of the Lord and know the Fellowship of the Lord and know the blessings and benefits of the living and the true God. <clears throat> We're thankful we've known something of those benefits even today as we've met in your presence and we've tasted something of genuine life, of genuine good, and are gathering together as your people this Lord's day. We pray that your blessing would go with us in the days that are before us in the coming week, that whatever we would find, our hand would find to do, we would do it to your glory, your honor, your praise. So hear our prayers, meet with us as your people, receive our praise and thanksgiving for the blessings of another Lord's Day as we come to you in Jesus' name, amen.